Hello, this is Mark Thomas, and I am coming to you from San Francisco, California for another amazing episode of the Ball and Chain podcast. This is episode number 15, um, and we have got a great guest today, uh, which I'll get to in a second. In the meantime, uh, let's kind of kick things off here. And uh, before I go any further, let's start off with our sponsor. Our sponsor is Zen Sports, uh, the peer-to-peer mobile sports betting app uh, where anybody can create and accept sports bets with anyone else in the world without the need for a bookmaker. So we've had a, a ton of interesting developments since we last did a pod the, in the sports world. Uh, the Lakers won their, we're going to call it the 12th championship, not 17th. Uh, them call them counting the championships from back in Minnesota don't count. And uh, so they won their 12th championship. Congratulations to them. I'm still bitter about my bucks. Uh, so we're not going to, we're not going to talk too much more about that. Uh, the NFL season has been uh, chugging along doing, I'd say it's been going really well. There's only been a couple of games that have been actually postponed uh, due to players uh, testing positive for COVID, which we knew was going to happen. So uh, the plan is in place. Most of the games are moving along. So I, I think that's in good shape. Uh, baseball playoffs, both league championship series are rocking and rolling. And uh, the last few episodes that we've done for the Ball and Chain podcast have actually mostly been focused on sports and sports betting, which, you know, very natural since uh, this is a sports betting uh, and cryptocurrency podcast. But we would like to uh, kind of start to do a little bit more on the crypto side in terms of uh, discussions around it uh, and the blockchain side, since that is a big part of what we believe in, uh, well, both with Zen Sports and personally and philosophically, uh, what I what I care about, as well as I know our, our guest uh, today. And so I think it's so important that we, you know, make, mix things up here a little bit, make sure that we have uh, enough of both not just the sports and sports betting world, but also the cryptocurrency and the, the blockchain world. Uh, after all, we are the ball and chain podcast, not just the ball podcast. So the chain part, which is blockchain, uh, is important that we uh, do that. And, and one of the things uh, before we get to our guests that I think is really important for those in our audience that might be new to the cryptocurrency and blockchain world is just to kind of walk everybody through like what is this blockchain thing and what is this crypto thing at, at the highest level and why does it make sense you know for the future of of payments and transactions so you know at, at, at a very high level blockchain in general is, is just simply a decentralized ledger or decentralized mechanism for conducting contracts or transactions it basically means there is not a middleman uh, like a bank uh, getting in the way of one party sending money to another or one party executing a contract with another. It's simply a decentralized uh, system uh, and network with a predefined set of rules uh, that uh, basically govern how transactions are conducted, whether it's contracts or whether it's, again, money transferring between two parties. And really, I, I think the thing that people a lot of times miss with this is just the the, the benefits of cryptocurrencies in general. So uh, at a high level, we look at uh, the benefits of crypto in four ways, or I do at least uh, personally, which is one, as I just kind of mentioned, there's no middleman getting in the way of approving or declining transactions. So if you send money to a third party, uh, you know, traditionally through like uh, credit card payments or PayPal or any other kind of mechanism, there's somebody actually in the middle who's approving or declining those transactions and saying you can or cannot send money. So for example, like PayPal may restrict international transfers that you want to send money back to your family on, or a bank may decline transactions to a betting or gambling product like Zen Sports because they don't quote unquote approve of the transaction. 
And that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you want to send money to somebody, you should be able to do so without a third party getting in the way. And of course, cryptocurrencies and blockchain solve for that because there is no middleman third party saying yes or no, you can or cannot do those transactions. The other huge benefit of cryptocurrencies and blockchain in, in terms of sending money is there's significantly lower fees. So if you send money to somebody via credit card, the credit card company is going to charge anywhere from, you know, three or four or five percent to the to the merchant. And a lot of times they will pass that cost on to their customers, uh, either in the forms of additional fees or in addition or in the form of higher prices. And so that's a that's a real drag when you're sending money to somebody having to pay three or four or five percent. Even if you're sending a wire transfer and having to pay 40 or 50 bucks, that's that's pretty ridiculous. Well, with with blockchain and cryptocurrency transactions, uh, the fees are a fraction of that. Okay, Um, on certain protocols, they're pennies or uh, maybe a maybe a dollar or two. And on really, you know, great new technology and protocols like Icon, which we're going to get into, uh, the fees are often fractions of a penny. Uh, so you just really can't beat it from a cost perspective. The third big benefit is instant settlements or near instant settlements, right? So again, if you send funds to somebody via ACH or credit card or wire transfer, it can take anywhere from one to five days for the other party to get the money. And that's just, I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's just purely due to the antiquated systems that are uh, financial institutions have, have been set up with. Uh, whereas with cryptocurrency, even the slowest of blockchains, probably say Bitcoin, you're going to have your funds in 20, 30, 40 minutes tops. And with newer technologies and protocols, I mean, you could get your funds in a matter of uh, seconds or milliseconds even. So from a settlement time perspective, uh, it's just, there's, there's, no, there's no competition there. And then lastly, and I think this is probably one of the biggest benefits is there's no chargebacks. So, you know, if you send funds to somebody uh, right now, if you uh, are a merchant and somebody pulls up their credit card to buy a, a chair from you for a hundred bucks, you know, a week later, if they don't like the chair or something goes wrong, guess what they're doing? They're not returning it and trying to get a new one with you. They're just calling their bank uh, and uh, submitting a chargeback. And that's in the best instances. Uh, the worst instances, instances, they're just committing chargeback fraud where they may go to the movies, buy 10 tickets for their family, watch the movie, and then a week later, call their bank and submit a chargeback. So even though they received the goods and services that they said they were going to, they'll just submit a chargeback. Uh, and with cryptocurrency transactions, uh, they're, they're, they're immutable. So you don't have to worry about chargeback fraud, uh, which, is, which is great. And as we're going to get into with my uh, next guest here, uh, Icon, uh, the protocol that our Zen Sports sports utility token and sports security token are built on, uh, these benefits that I just talked about are even more greatly enhanced because the technology is so good and uh, that allows for even cheaper fees and uh, you know faster settlement times and, and so forth. So without further ado, let me welcome our next guest on the Ball and Chain podcast, Scott Smiley uh, from the Icon Foundation. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing well, Mark. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate, really appreciate you joining us today. So you have had, I think, just a really, really interesting, you know, biography and background, uh, both pre-ICON and what you've been doing since you joined ICON a couple of years ago. So let's first start with what you were doing prior to ICON in kind of the traditional financial institution world, because I think that'll set us up for some interesting discussion points later. And then we'll get into your ICON background after that. Sure. Sounds good. So I was working uh, prior to Icon, I was working for two years at Deutsche Bank uh, in a both sales and origination capacity uh, for asset-backed securities. 
Nice. And what did that exactly entail? Like when you were um, doing sales, were you working with investment banking clients, you know, bringing them on board into Deutsche Bank? Or, I mean, was it more of an analyst role, kind of like analyzing different portfolios and or, uh, you know, different uh, securities? Or what did that look like? Sure. Yeah, I'll just go kind of into uh, both my roles briefly. So when I was in sales, which was uh, the first role that I had, um, I would work with hedge funds, uh, insurance companies, pension funds, the like, all of Deutsche Bank's institutional clients um, to facilitate primary issuance of asset-backed securities. So if we were ish- if if let's say uh, you know some consumer bank was issuing um, an asset-backed security backed by uh, unsecured consumer loans, you know I'd be on the phone with hedge funds saying uh, how much of this tranche do you want? You want ten million, twenty million? I'd put them down in the book. You'd build a book for the primary issuance, um, and then allocate them uh, accordingly. And then also, uh, we facilitated secondary trades as well. So Deutsche Bank had a balance sheet of many different types of asset-backed securities. Uh, you know, I learned a lot on the job. Really interesting stuff like you know, shipping containers are all in asset-backed securities. Um, everyone's car payments, you know, payments on on uh, airplanes. You know, everything that has any sort of steady cash flow ends up. Uh, in an asset-backed security, which I found interesting. So I learned a lot about kind of the high level of the product in the sales role um, and what types of funds were buying different types of products, uh, and those types of things. And then I kind of wanted to dive deeper into the product itself, wanted to learn more of the inner workings of an asset-backed security and how they come to be. So I got moved over, uh, you know, after a year in sales, got moved over to asset-backed security origination, where I would actually be looking at uh, what we called the loan tapes and digging into the individual, uh, d- digging into the, the loans themselves to make sure, you know, putting in like uh, what the FICO scores, like the weighted average FICO score, weighted average term, uh, the weighted average uh, APR on all these loans. I would aggregate all those statistics. I would make sure that the statistics make sense and I'd send it over the banking team to kind of put together the deal. Nice, nice. Wow, those are pretty, uh, you know, diversified um, set of experiences that you got there. So then what made you decide that you wanted to go from kind of the traditional financial institution world to this new thing called crypto that um, really isn't that new? I mean, Bitcoin's been around since what, 2000, uh, early 2009, but for all intents and purposes, it really started taking off kind of three, four years ago. What made you want to go from the traditional banking world over into something completely new and different, uh, like the cryptocurrency and blockchain world uh, with your position with Icon that you took in April 2018? Yeah, I mean, uh, really what it came down to was like when I first learned about smart contracts and what a smart contract is, and I and my imagination kind of just started running wild as I thought of like uh, the different applications and how my role at Deutsche Bank worked, um, you know, and, the, and just like the structure of an asset-backed security and how that could really be ported over to a smart contract. I just became fascinated with it started diving in, um, doing a ton of research, reading different white papers, educating myself on the technology, started going to conferences, building myself a network. And I was like, you know, I want to, uh, I want to learn how this can be applied to my current industry. And I want to, I want to, I want to be like on the front lines, seeing how this technology evolves, because I know it's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really cool. And it's interesting, because I think everybody that um, ultimately gets into blockchain and crypto, they have kind of a different path. I got there by day trading crypto, so it was a very different path. But I still came to the same conclusion that you did, which was, holy cow, this uh, smart contract thing and this concept of a decentralized network for moving, uh, whether it be money via cryptocurrencies or 
um, you know, assets around via smart contracts is just mind blowing. Um, and so I think ultimately everyone kind of gets to that same conclusion regardless of how they start off. Uh, but yeah, it is, it's super interesting the paths that people take to, to get to that point. And usually that is, I agree with you. That's like the aha moment is like, wow, you can actually build contracts that do things in a set way without having somebody get in the middle of it. I mean, is, is, is really, I think kind of fascinating. And so, so you took the job at, at, at Icon back in April, 2018, and you've since then been working on both strategy and ICX station. So what is kind of the breakdown between the two? Like, how do you split your time between both roles? Um, and give us a breakdown of like what each of those roles entails. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say like, uh, really, I go wherever the call of duty is, you know, like whatever it needs to get done, I'll get it done. We're a scrappy startup and I'm sure you know what it's like um, to kind of have many hats on at the same time. But um, I'd say like on average, it's probably a 50-50 split. Um, strategy for Icon is more network level. Um, I think a lot about how the technology should be governed since this is a decentralized technology and the Icon Foundation um, won't be leading the charge on everything um, forever. So we need to have like a clear yeah. governance system in place. We need to have a clear economic structure uh, that makes sense, uh, is easy to understand and can be predictable. Um, so I work on the token economics of Icon and I also look for business development opportunities for uh, for the chain itself, uh, whether it be partnerships for um, added layers of infrastructure like an oral solu Oracle solution or uh, you know maybe something, uh, some sort of privacy solution, but whatever it may be, um, business development comes into play as well. And then just general uh, directional strategy. What do we want to be working on? What do we want to be talking about as a team? So that would be kind of the strategy team role. And then when it comes to ICX station, I'm very much focused specifically on use case and specifically on two primary KPIs for the network, which is uh, transaction volume and uh, monthly active wallets, which for those listening would be the equivalent of just monthly active users. Um, so yeah, I'm working on a couple of different, uh, specific projects on the ICX station side, um, decentralized finance related, and, uh, another would be a, a fiat on-ramp widget that I'm pretty excited about to kind of abstract away the blockchain layer to icon based applications. Cool. Yeah. We'll get to that in a second. So two questions then. So one is I find it fascinating, you know, what you said about the fact that you know, Icon Foundation won't necessarily, quote unquote, be around forever, because ultimately, it's about being decentralized and not having one governing body. And I think that's something that those in the business world probably have a hard time grasping is that in a lot of ways, you're building things to put yourself out, not out of a job, but, you know, out of doing what you're currently doing. Um, and, and then you almost kind of step away and let the network take over. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think, or, you know, what is kind of, you know, explain that to somebody that wouldn't understand, you know, uh, what that means. Because most people, you know, they go, they work at a job. Uh, they're certainly not working a job to put themselves out of business, um, or they're certainly not working to put themselves out of a job or anything like that. So I think that's a really interesting concept that as a foundation, it's building this protocol, it's building this network. And then ultimately, the goal of it is to actually step aside and let the network do its thing. Yeah, I mean, I think a good way to explain it just from a super high level is that, you know, blockchain and, and applications built in this industry and, and networks built using this technology, they're very user centric, they're very community centric. So what when you, when you give up control, what you actually end up doing is creating a much more valuable network. In, in a centralized company, you try to maintain as much control as possible and have as much 
um, you know, maintain as much revenue from the product as possible. But in these decentralized blockchain networks, without a community, you're really, you're really nothing. I mean, the way that Icon gains adoption and, and the ICX token gains value is a, a passionate community behind it, which is something that we've spent years building. And I'm really excited about uh, the current state of our community and the passion we have from our community to evangelize the products built using our technology. And it really creates a really interesting network effect. I mean, just a specific example, uh, you know, kind of out of nowhere this year, we had a community pop-up called Icon Filipinas, and they have an extremely active online community using Icon products, evangelizing Icon, talking about Icon in the Philippines in a different language, in Tagalog. No one at the Icon Foundation speaks Tagalog. Nobody in the Icon Foundation is based in the Philippines. Um, and this was just something really organic that popped up because of the decentralized nature of our network, because of things like governance and giving more control to the community and more things for them to do, more things for them to work on. You know, the more responsibility you give out to the community, the more passionate um, and dedicated they become. That's really great. And I, I think, yeah, that is, that's, that's a foreign concept, but a super, super interesting and great one, actually. <clears throat> and like, just kind of curious, so how long has it taken to build up the, the community? It's been two, three years. I mean, you know, for those that might be looking to like, you know, kind of get into this area, like what kind of, um, you know, road are they looking at in terms of like what it takes to build something like that up? Because it feels like it would be massive. Uh, but I'm just kind of interested to like how, hear how you guys went about that and like what, what kind of obstacles you face and like what it took to get to that point where your community is that passionate, where it can eventually run on its own. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely always a work in progress, right? Like it's still still growing and still a lot of effort to maintain it and, um, you know, keep the, keep the passion going and keep it growing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, it has been um, to get to the point where we are right now, definitely the entire two and a half, three years that, I, that I've been at Icon um, of, you know, constantly thinking about how to uh, get a passionate community, how to uh, listen to the listen to the community is really important, you know, to essentially you're listening to your users and aggregating feedback from your users and trying to make everybody happy. Right. So um, it's been a lot of feedback aggregation, trial and error, but you know, what it comes down to in practice is, is engaging with them and being on Twitter and social media, uh, being in the telegram chat rooms when questions arise. I mean, sentiment can change quickly. There's one question that goes unanswered that that ruffles some feathers and then a couple other people hop on top of that and it, mm -hmm. you could have a really positive and happy and passionate community turn uh, against you like that so um you know it's really important to be constantly engaged with your community answering their questions and you know uh giving them uh you know making them feel important as they are right and i think also the the other part which we'll get into which is the technology i mean the technology has to be good where there are um, real use cases for adoption, right? Right. Um, so I talked about it the, in the monologue, you know, about the uh, settlement times and the, the, the costs, uh, the transfer fee costs uh, and so forth that I think, you know, are two huge advantages uh, specifically of ICON versus Ethereum or other protocols, which is, I mean, you've got this tech that is just, it's, it's just fantastic. I mean, I can send you funds and you've got the money like almost instantaneously and it costs like a 15th of a penny to send uh, or so. Uh, and you're talking about, you know, uh, building up the widget and uh, stable coin stuff and, and whatnot. And it just, it keeps adding more uh, real world use cases to it and more utilitarian value. 
And when you do that, then I think while you still have to build the community and, and keep them happy, uh, it becomes harder for like one kind of uh, person that might try to sound off to do anything because other ones like, well, okay, yeah, maybe whatever. I, I get your opinion, but like it still has real world application for me. So I don't care, you know, kind of thing. Right. In other words, the technology can kind of almost trump everything. Um, you want to keep the community happy, but you obviously continue to build great tech and people are just going to naturally gravitate towards it and use it no matter what, uh, which, you know, I, I mean, we certainly see, like, for example, we use icon. I would much rather have everything transact in icon over fiat because I can send the money in uh, a blink of an eyelash and it's, I mean, the fees are almost non-existent. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's really important as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. Um, I think having like a uh, good user experience is important and having products that are, are genuinely good products. Um, you know, I guess like I'd kind of break it into two different layers. There's like the application layer, which is where Zen Sports would be. And Zen Sports has their own community within Icon, um, who may or may not be part of the Icon community. Think of it somewhat as a Venn diagram. But then you also have like the broader Icon community, which would evangelize something like Zen Sports as soon as they feel that this is. Uh, you know, beneficial to Icon and, and an exciting development for the Icon community, you could be sure that it's going to be plastered all over Icon social media. They're going to be talking about it to all their friends and that grassroots marketing engine, marketing engine really gets going, which is, uh, you know, outside of uh, the things you've mentioned about uh, fast settlement times and small fees, I think like the Icon community adds a ton of value to building on our network, uh, building a product on our network that uh, will immediately have grassroots following i mean like zen sports could have a huge presence in the philippines without ever spending a dollar on marketing on filipino channels for example right no that's 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 amazing exactly it's almost like you know the entire community becomes your marketing engine uh, right because exactly. they have incentives and uh they have uh ties into everything that's going on and so they care about promoting it as well which is which is really awesome so it all just it all just feeds off itself um and let me ask you i guess one last question before we move on to the things like how would you feel like obviously i'm a little biased because you know we built on top of icon so i love everything you know about your community and tech um but how would you just kind of uh you know for those that say hey well why not ethereum or why not uh wan chain or what are these other ones why do you say like icon is it because of the community and the tech um is it because of you know the future roadmap uh what would you say are the things that like make you really stand out why dapps should come and build on top of icon yeah i do think kind of uh you hit the nail on the head there i'd say it's a combination of those two key items which is uh technology that can get the job done you have fast settlement times uh low transaction fees we have things in place that i won't get into too much detail that just make for a much easier user experience for people who are non-crypto users, which I think is really mm -hmm. important rather than battling for this uh, small pie of existing crypto users. I think it's better to try and uh, increase the size of the pie and have them come onto the icon network. And then on top of that, um, you also have the strong, passionate community um, that's always growing. So I think like having that grassroots marketing engine uh, in the icon community, having the support from, uh, you know, the icon foundation, the contact point that, you know, you would have with me um, to get questions answered or any features you may need for our network. Um, you know, we're very much involved in the larger projects on our network. And, um, you know, so we, there's a lot of support to be had uh, when when building on Icon. It's, you're not just going to go to a developer documentation website and, and start building. You're going to have plenty of direction and support and troubleshooting from us. 
yeah, it's not like you can go uh, talk to Vidalik. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, if you have a question on Ethereum. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so that, I have to say, like, that's actually one of the big benefits I've found when we have worked with Icon is just the fact that you and your team have been so super helpful for questions that we have and uh, so forth. And that's, you know, going back to building community is, is so important. It's also the developer community. It's not just the end user community. Um, it's also the developer community that will be de- building and developing on top of it. Uh, so that's, that's, that's smart. And that's, I think, a good segue to, to talk a little bit about ICX Station. So to give our listeners a background, we got introduced to uh, Min, uh, who was uh, one of the council members and I believe the COO at, uh, at Icon. Uh, he and one of our advisors used to go to school together and we got introduced. This was now, we're talking while wow, time flies, like two and a half years ago, uh, back in early June, 2018. And uh, our advisor let, uh, or we told our advisor and told, of course, all of our advisors and uh, employees and investors that we were uh, making a pivot from uh, basically recreational sports uh, to peer-to-peer sports betting using cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. And so he introduced us to Icon and we went through the um, ICX station accelerator uh, in San Francisco, which I found super helpful because, you know, we were really new to the, again, going back to the supporting the developer uh, concept, you know, we were really new to uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies from, especially from a developer perspective or development perspective. I didn't know much about it. So we found the, the ICX station to be super helpful. Uh, And I know that that time it was just in San Francisco. So how do you look at it now? Like, you know, kind of in a post COVID world where people are kind of dispersed everywhere and, and whatnot. Uh, it, it sounds like it's now more of a global accelerator and you kind of do it on a case by case basis where you see a really interesting project that you want to kind of get your hands uh, dirty with a little bit more and, 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 and maybe kind of help them a little bit more one on one type of thing. Walk us through what that looks like now uh, and kind of how that has evolved over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, we, we, we pivoted a lot, actually, pretty significantly from when we first engaged with you. I would say we wanted to try the accelerator model. Um, it was kind of too long range, if you will, um, especially in, in this industry where, you know, things move really quickly and you have to adapt to current trends. Um, I'd say, like, the initial inception of ICX Station of an accelerator was kind of trying to take advantage uh, or continue riding out uh, kind of the ICO boom with, uh, you know, lots of different tokens with lots of different purposes. but um, at this point, we've kind of shifted that strategy to a much more internal approach where we try to incubate and spin out ideas um, that we think uh, are applicable to current industry trends. And I, I guess the key thing is that we know exactly what KPIs we're looking for. So we can kind of build that into these products. Uh, we know exactly what it is we need and what we're trying to uh, accomplish rather than like, you know, I think a good example is uh, one of the DeFi projects I'm working on, uh, you know, without getting into too much detail, you, these types of projects are on many public blockchain platforms and kind of like a necessary piece of public blockchain infrastructure, if you will. So to sit around and wait for someone to come to put a project on my desk that is going to have this infrastructure, it's like, why wait for someone else to do that and then invest in them when I know that we need this and we can build it out ourselves and invest our capital internally um, you know, outsourcing development, um, bringing on other team members and things like that to manage these specific projects. So at this point, it's turned much more into kind of an incubator where we try and spin things out from uh, the original accelerator model. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like for those that are familiar with the tech and VC concept of a, like an entrepreneur in residence uh, or an in-house incubator, 
uh, it feels more like that, right? So where you're recognizing the things that need to be built um, and building out those projects yourself, uh, making sure you have all the right team members working on the right things, investing in your own technology versus hoping, like you said, you know, adapt comes along and, you know, builds what you want them to build. And then you go and invest in them. You got a lot more control over this way. And I'm sure you could do things too. Like if you really felt like you're stretch on bandwidth, you could probably do things like request for proposal and stuff like that. Right? Absolutely. Why yeah. yeah. Combinator does that stuff too. Yep. And, and one other thing I wanted to highlight was, uh, what's it called? Um, the fact that these projects are all decentralized in nature and community run in nature. It allows us to kind of take on a lot of different projects um, within ICX Station because, you know, you give away so much of the project to your users and community members um, at, through these like uh, governance, you know, the, these community members end up owning pieces of the platform and, and they end up evangelizing it and almost taking on, a, you know, a management role themselves. And, you know, they get passionate enough, they end up, uh, you know, taking over a good portion of leading the project. So it allows ICX Station to kind of work on many different things um, as community members step up in these different projects. Yeah, totally. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it just continues that, uh, you know, ev evangelizing and that community growth and organic uh, community growth that you don't get just from like paid ads and stuff like that. You actually have people in the community who are both developing and using or they're doing both. Um, and so, you know, that really, you know, speaks to uh, kind of the way both cryptocurrencies and blockchain projects are set up in general, which I think is fascinating. And then also, uh, just again, specifically to Icon's community. So I want to take a, a little bit of a step back here and kind of, you know, compare a little bit more in depth, um, you know, some of the experiences that you had in the traditional financial institution world uh, compared to Icon, just because we have both, you know, uh, hardcore blockchain and cryptocurrency listeners, and we have those that might not know much about it. So having worked in the traditional banking world and knowing what the future holds with cryptocurrencies and blockchain, what do you think the future holds with traditional banking, given the emergence of cryptocurrencies and blockchain? Do you think it's going to come in and just completely wipe them out and be a completely new decentralized system? Um, do you think their banks are just going to try and adopt this themselves and kind of maybe mix and match some aspects of centralization, decentralization? Just kind of curious what your thoughts are for traditional financial institutions, especially in the banking side of things that are going up against um, newer upcoming technologies like blockchain and cryptocurrencies that could theoretically eat into their business. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like uh, these, I think, you know, traditional financial institutions, um, you know, maybe unpopular opinion will, will very much still have a place uh, in the future, uh, regardless of how blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies evolve. I mean, you know, you talk to most people and not many people want to be their own bank. You know, like it's great to have the option. And I do like uh, the self-sovereign nature of public blockchain. I definitely uh, self-custody my crypto assets. But I do think that, uh, you know, at the very least, uh, a traditional financial institution can still offer the service of essentially private key management. Um, you know, so that way, if you lose your private key, you lose access to your funds, um, you know, there'll always be a backup available and you can maybe pay some sort of fee to have them store that backup. And then on top of that, I imagine there'll be insurance pro uh, products uh, for people who do manage their own private keys or even for these uh, financial institutions that are taking custody of private keys. I'm sure there'll be like a whole insurance industry built around that. I'm sure there's already products available for um, 
crypto custody solutions like BitGo. Um, or and then, I, I don't know much about Zappo or XAPO. I don't even know how that's, is it Zappo? Zappo? Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with them either, actually. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of crypto custody solutions for like large institutions like, like hedge funds and whatnot who are holding Bitcoin. Um, and I imagine there's some sort of insurance associated with it uh, that they could pay uh, to make sure that, um, you know, the if, uh, you know, the funds are stolen or something like that. I think actually Square, um, who just recently purchased 50 million in Bitcoin right. um, and publicly announced it, um, they shared this brief kind of white paper, they called it. I mean, it's like two and a half pages, not even just detailing how they purchased the, uh, the Bitcoin from like OTC markets and ways to keep it safe through custody solutions and ways to keep it insured. So there's definitely insurance pro- uh, products already out there uh, for people, you know, who, I mean, when you have 50 million in Bitcoin, you know, like one mistake, you don't want that to just eat yeah. all 50 million and that'd be kind of devastating. So um, right. these, you know, you brought up chargebacks earlier in your discussion. Um, you know, there are no chargebacks on Bitcoin and that's mostly a good thing, except if someone happens to steal 50 million Bitcoin from you, you'd like the opportunity to reverse that transaction, I'd imagine. Um, right. So you can't do that. Uh, so there would be uh, insurance products available for people in that situation. Right. And and so just to go to Zappos, so they're like a bunker. Uh, so it's a, I'll have to share this with you afterwards. It's a, the headline is the secret Swiss mountain bunker where millionaires stash their Bitcoin. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, and I think they have basically like uh, cold wallets, you know, underneath these bunkers. Uh, you know, where nobody can access them or, or whatever, something to that effect. But yeah, I mean, I could see like, you're right, insurance products or the ability to like split out that 50 million in Bitcoin across a ton of different wallets, um, like really super, super easily. Uh, so that, you know, if anything goes wrong with one, you've, you know, you've only lost a fraction of it versus all of it. Uh, just things that make that whole entire concept of storage still secure and still immutable. But at the same time, um, protects you in case of some kind of uh, error or loss. Yeah. And, and, and one other thing I wanted to mention uh, before we move on from that question is yeah. just like, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize uh, that the major role played by large financial institutions, such as, uh, you know, the JP Morgans, Morgan Stanley, the Deutsche Banks of the world. These are, these are relationship businesses. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, was on, when I was on the sales desk and I was, um, you know, taking an order for, you know, $20 million worth of bonds it's not like that was some sort of automated process. I mean, it's a it's a relationship that my boss, uh, you know, the director of sales had with this hedge fund and said, hey, man, if you want to buy 20 million of this bond, you should buy it from Deutsche Bank. You shouldn't buy it from JP, you know, because we know each other. We have this relationship. I mean, it's very much a relationship business and, and, and blockchain is very much a back-end technology. So what I do think could happen is like the role of the sales guy and, and, and the role of these relationship managers will always be there but their jobs can be much more efficient. For example, like I had thought it would be, there'd be no way I could possibly like mess up a trade, but these are all manually entered into some like archaic system. When this guy buys 20 million worth of a bond, I just like manually type that into a chat message and tell someone else who like writes it down. You know, like that's where blockchain comes into play is like kind of trimming the fat from these institutions and making them much leaner. And, but, but the institutions themselves and the relationships they bring to the table with, you know, these large, funds and large pools of capital that's that's not going anywhere in my opinion yeah well and i think what's gonna i think i, I would piggyback off that and say what i think will happen is <clears throat> the financial institutions and investment banks will just further become relationship businesses where the business development and salespeople will basically run the entire organization and maybe kind of the people that did some of the basic data entry analysis 
other kinds of maybe lower level or uh, routine uh, financial or accounting type of work or tasks, those will start to go away, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's pretty yeah, much. Very, I agree. Yeah, very similar like in the real estate world. Like, uh, So my last startup, we built a transaction management platform that uh, helped real estate agents uh, and brokers uh, you know, do their job more efficiently. And it didn't eliminate real estate agents and brokers, but it did, you know, automate a lot of the paperwork and a lot of the administrative stuff. And so you didn't necessarily need, you know, that admin assistant necessarily, you know, cranking out all these pieces of paper anymore. Um, and the relationship or the, excuse me, the role of the broker and agent shifted from being a paper pusher to being more of a consultant, helping the buyer and the seller more understand their needs and more understand what the market's doing. Um, and, you know, walking them through that versus again, like, oh, sign this document. Um, so I think a lot of that, I, I really, really agree with that. Now, what I do think, though, too, and interested to get your take on this is that traditional credit card companies, like maybe say, MasterCard, Visa, or merchant payment processors like Stripe and PayPal, I do think that they may be in for a little bit of a, not a little bit, a lot of a struggle over the next five to 10 years. As uh, cryptocurrency payment processing APIs and shameless plugs and sports does cryptocurrency payment processing API solutions uh, for merchants. Um, I think they will struggle because people will see when they can accept cryptocurrencies at a fraction of the cost with no settlement times and uh, no chargebacks. It's and especially once they realize and are starting to recognize that there are stable coins that are tied to the dollar that uh, they don't need to worry about like the price fluctuations, say with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies that are out there. It's a no brainer. I mean, why the heck wouldn't they switch to it? Yeah. I mean, I think like uh, what it comes down to is like the credit card companies have done a great job um, kind of putting merchants uh, backs against the wall where, I mean, credit cards are just so convenient. And like, you know, I love my Chase Sapphire reserve, you know, like I get tons of points on it. I get extra points when I use those points for traveling. I mean, from the user's perspective, I pay nothing to have my credit card next to nothing, and uh, I get a ton of benefits. So mm. what people in my industry, um, you know, I'm not particularly working on it myself. Of course, I have ideas in the back of my mind, uh, pretty busy these days, of course. But, um, you know, I do think at some point, someone will come up with an idea that creates the same level of convenience and rewards for end users. And... It's going to have to do with uh, cryptocurrency payments, so it's going to be much cheaper for the merchant. But the problem is right now is that, you know, the merchant, when I'm talking about my chase points, like those points come from the merchants, right? Like they've created this situation where the consumer is demanding that the merchant accept this form of payment because it's so convenient for us and it gives us uh, so many rewards that we just need to figure out that same system using cryptocurrency payments and stablecoin payments where the user is incentivized to hold on to a bunch of stable coins and use those stable coins as payment. And uh, then, you know, merchants won't have to pay these ridiculous fees. I mean, you know, it is, it is they are, the fees for the, on the merchant side of things can definitely be quite high, especially for small ticket items. Um, just like through some low level research I've done talking to, you know, different, uh, you know, guys that work at corner, corner stores or guys that own corner stores. It's like they sell, uh, you know, a stick of gum or whatever for a dollar or two dollars, and there's a minimum transaction fee that they have to pay on the credit card. So it ends up eating what, like 20, 30% of the income on those right. small ticket items because of the minimum transaction fee. So I definitely think, for especially for small ticket items like, um, you know, stablecoin payments, there's going to be some room there once someone figures out a model that gets uh, the end user excited about it. 
Well, so here's what we're kind of doing. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you I, to speak to that specific point. So for some of the large, um, <clears throat> call them merchants, but they're you know large enterprise companies that we're talking to you about, for example, with our cryptocurrency payments API, uh, this is you know definitely something I think that has some merit to it is you accept the stable coins as the form of payment, right? Uh, because you don't want to lose the value there in the fluctuation. And then, for example, in our case, because sports is a you know a, a, a token that we created, you reward them back in in sports tokens or whatever other token it might be, and you basically do it as a difference between what you would have paid as the credit card to the credit card companies and uh, accepting cash, which would be zero. So instead of paying, let's just use a, a, a hundred dollar uh, ticket item. So if you're going to pay three dollars and fifty cents in in fees. Instead, what you do is you accept crypto, which has fractions of a fee, and then you give the customer like one or two dollars back, and then you pocket the difference as the merchant. That's really where I think things head. Right. And it can be whatever ticket item it is. Um, so you basically, as a merchant, you win because you pay less in fees. The customer wins because they still keep their rewards. And of course, the only person that, the only company that loses is the credit card processing company. We don't care about them. So <laughs> I, I think that really definitely and it's a marketing expense, right? You know, yeah, exactly. or promotional exactly. expense, a promotional expense, loyalty and rewards expense, whatever you want to classify it as. So I think that's got to be where it heads. And I think it is. Yeah, I mean, we're already starting to experiment with that. And uh, I think that that's really, really interesting. And, and where I, the reason why I asked the question is, you know, you look at like Stripe has like whatever, $20 billion valuation now as of the recent round of $22 billion, whatever it is, as of the recent round of funding. PayPal's obviously worth gobs and gobs of money. Uh, so are Visa and MasterCard. Um, and you have these entrenched businesses that are worth a lot of money that are have built their entire business on these old models. And I think you're going to see a very interesting kind of uh, tidal wave shift over the next five to 10 years as merchants wake up to what you and I are saying right now and saying, why the hell am I giving these guys three and a half percent? I could I could um, pay basically near nothing, give my customer one or two percent, keep them happy and pocket the difference. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Plus, have all the other benefits, no chargebacks, et cetera, right? So, and then, yeah. and then the good thing for the user too is the money goes from uh, having to go to the credit card company, and then the credit card company takes their cut and then gives something back to the user. It's just kind of cuts out that layer where the reward goes directly back to the user from the company itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think the other interesting aspect of this too is when does the government kind of get behind using stablecoin cryptocurrencies as well too, right? So there's kind of talk, you know, obviously like again in a post-COVID world of wanting to digitize a lot of that stuff and saying, hey, you know, there's a better way for doing this too versus the old ACH automated clearinghouse system, uh, which is completely archaic and the old wire transfer system and definitely the old SWIFT system, which is really ridiculous, is, hey, we can digitize the dollar. Uh, and obviously you have stablecoins that are already out there. If the government starts endorsing this too, then your mom and pop merchants that might have been hesitant about using crypto, they'll say, well, okay, I mean, uh, you know, if this is backed by the you know government, the, or, or if this is at least endorsed by them, you know, there's, there's some opportunities there too. So I think, I do think there's kind of a tidal wave coming in the next five to 10 years, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah, I think that's a good time frame too. It's going to take some time for the government to get comfortable with the new technology. But uh, yeah, I do think that's the direction we're heading. Yeah, because they, they want to save money. They're looking to cut costs. Uh, they're looking to speed up processing, and they're looking to digitize things further, you know, and go and go cashless for a lot of reasons. And um, there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, so yeah. So 
going to kind of wrap up here. Uh, so I know on the sports betting side, so you're back in New Jersey now, right? Cause you were in the Bay area and, and are you back? Are you back in New Jersey now? I am. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So you've got access to all the online sports books back there right now. That's uh, right. The second and, I landed, and, I got a $100 uh, free bet from FanDuel. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going through our application process right now with Nevada, and we are also moving very quickly in other states too. I expect for Zen Sports, uh, I'm referring to, I expect us to be in at least eight to 10 states and hopefully including New Jersey uh, a year from now. So um, it's coming. We're going to get there. Uh, but I, I, it's a, it's a process that's for darn sure. Um, but anyway, so like, you know, what are your thoughts on just that? Like, right. I mean, I, I know maybe, you know, you haven't been around as long as maybe I have to remember the old days when you had to go to an offshore online sports book. And even, even before my day, you had to go to your, you know, corner bookie on the, in the back alley (laughs) to do your transactions. Uh, But so the, the evolution has been, and, and even if you go before that, it was all like, you know, mob related. So you, you went, which is why the Wire Act was created. So you got, yep. you went from mob transactions in like the 50s and 60s and 70s to, uh, or and, and 80s probably, to or maybe to the 70s. And then uh, local bookie transactions in the 80s. And then online, I did my first online sports bet with Intertops back in 1996 when I was in college um, to, to that. And then nowadays, uh, and nothing in the U.S., all offshore online yep. Nothing local in the U.S. except for if you went to Vegas and wanted to place a bet physically in person. To now having 20 states are legalized, and I expect 35 to 40 states will be legalized a year from now, and it's just proliferating everywhere. So, what are your, you know, I know you're kind of more of a casual sports better, but like, what are your thoughts are on just how quickly things are moving on that front? No, I mean, I, I definitely like it. Uh, I definitely enjoy it. I'm, I'm more of a fantasy sports kind of guy, so I was, I was happy with the creation of the initial iteration of. DraftKings and FanDuel. I've got three fantasy leagues going this year, and I'm in some like uh, you know pick 'em survivor survivor pool. So I've got a lot going on where like even adding one additional bet is like mind numbing to me. Of like, what am I even rooting for at this point? So I get like uh, a little too confused with all of the stuff that I'm doing right now. But you know, kind of going back to your question, I mean, I, I definitely like the direction things are going, um, and I actually think um, you know if regulators had the time and the manpower to just you know, study blockchain technology and understand what a smart contract is, man, their job could be so much easier. You know, like all they'd have to do is create some sort of standard template for a sports betting contract and say, if you're not using this, it's against the law. If you are using it, this is totally legit. We have our dedicated APIs that you guys have to use. If you're not using, you know, these regulated APIs, then what you're doing is against the law. If you are, then you're good to go. I mean, it could be so much easier. It could be so much more scalable the job of a regulator can turn into the job of a smart contract auditor, essentially Uh, making sure that uh, the code is law and the code is written properly and the code can't be altered. All the logic is sound. I mean, um, you know, instead of having all this administrative work, uh, you know, and regulatory filings that these companies need to do, it could just be streamlined on both the regulatory front and the, uh, you know, the product building front. So I, I completely agree. And so that's kind of one of the things that we are looking to do as we enter the U.S. because we have some of those things in place. So we don't think they're going to be like really open to that right off the bat. Um, even cryptocurrencies are kind of like, oh, God, what is that? <clears throat> but we think that as time goes on, we have the infrastructure for that because obviously we do this internationally um, on the blockchain and crypto side. I think as time goes on and we show them how customers want this product and how it is much better, we can actually 
be a you know consultant to them and help them understand what you're talking about. Um, but I think I think you know someone like FanDuel, DraftKings, if they go in, they, they can't really do that because they don't have the technology infrastructure to make that happen. And then I think also a purely, purely, purely decentralized project won't be able to do that because the regulators won't even legalize them in the first place. So that's why we are kind of taking this semi-decentralized approach with Zen Sports, where we come in with all that infrastructure, but we can still do things kind of the traditional way. And then we kind of ease them into it, you know, over time. And hopefully it doesn't take too long uh, to, to get them comfortable with those things. And, uh, you know, once we're in there and, and we're working with them, uh, so we're, we're going to play by their rules, of course, and we have to, uh, but we'd love to introduce them to some really great new technologies that they could look at using as well. And uh, hopefully they'll be, um, you know, pretty excited about that over time too. So hopefully we can be that uh, kind of savior that comes in and does some of those things that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, that'd be awesome. I think kind of the unfortunate truth is that uh, big players who have uh, a lot of money on the line and a lot of lobbying power, like, like FanDuel and DraftKings, I doubt they would want to see anything move in the direction we're talking about. I mean, they already went through all right. these hurdles. They already have all of these licenses and regulators approval, um, which was extremely difficult and costly for them, you know, and it created a huge barrier to entry uh, for any future competitors. It's like, why would they want to see anything change? You know what I'm saying? So uh, it's going to be a long battle, but uh, you know, I do think the superior technology will eventually win out. Yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of how long, right? Yeah. And so I do agree with you that kind of the entrenched incumbents won't want this. Um, I guess we're kind of hoping that we can become one of those incumbents at some point, but also have this as part of our DNA as who we are uh, and look to kind of change some of these things. Uh, we don't think it'll happen overnight. No way. Uh, it'll definitely take some time. But I mean, it's definitely a process, right? And I think with all new technologies, it's always a process. You just can't can't snap your fingers and do it overnight. This is not the way the government's built. They're not, not the way they're set up to do things. So I think, you know, it definitely, you have to be willing to kind of play within the rules, but if you can also make your case, you know, in a convincing way to at least try things or do a proof of concept or, you know, allow certain people to opt into certain features and sort of stuff like that. Right. And over time, before you know it, you, you do have a, you know, a product that actually, um, and a system set up in place to do those things. So yeah, we're, we're pretty hopeful. It won't happen overnight, but we're pretty hopeful. Um, and, and the last thing we'll just talk about, so we, you know, in Zen Sports, we do uh, betting right now in dollars, Bitcoin, and sports tokens, of which predominantly the most betting is in sports tokens. We're actually recording this uh, today on Monday. This, will, this episode will be out uh, tomorrow, and we are planning on launching ICX betting, uh, which is the uh, coin on Icon. Uh, in Zen Sports uh, tomorrow night. So we're excited to get that going. Uh, we know that you have a passionate community and hopefully some of them are going to be interested in betting some of their ICX on some sports. And uh, yeah, looking forward to continuing to integrate all the different icon products further and deeper into Zen Sports and into the community. Yeah, yeah. Excited as well, Mark. Looking forward to the launch of ICX. Yeah. Well, awesome, Scott. This was super, uh, this was a really interesting conversation and uh, really uh, just enjoyed uh, catching up. Uh, I know it's been a while since we've been able to have a really good in-depth conversation. Uh, we will uh, definitely be sharing this out to everybody and I'm sure everyone in the ICON community will be interesting to, interested to hear all your thoughts that you talked about today. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, have, hope you have a great day. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>